clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. This is Ots Tyrion, the podcast where we canonize millennium era horror. I'm your host, Sam Wyman. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Sam. I'm so happy to be back with you here today. This I I know. Favorite. You know, like my uh, a, a podcast producer friend of mine likes to say that every episode is someone's first episode. Um, and while that may be true, hello to any new listeners out there, I would like to think that you guys started out with the first episode because you were simply too excited about the pod that you had to dive in as soon as it was available to you. And you heard our tremendous uh, analysis on The Hitcher. And you are now ready to hear us serve up some of the more, uh, some similar quippy, in like lighthearted, yet deep diving, highbrow, lowbrow combination analysis that you have come to expect from us, if you know us by our, our work and our internet personae. And if all you know us by is, say, our grinder profile, you're welcome <laughs> as well. And you're yeah, in for a treat. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, get ready, get ready to to swipe in 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 swipe quickly in favorable directions, having even more wonderful context for the wonder that is Sam Weinman. That reads like a fortune cookie. Like swipe favorably. <laughs> Quickly in favorable directions. Um, yeah. <laughs> what we have brought to you today, oh man, is something that is, I know, special to you, Jordan. It is very personal to me. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and I can't like I almost can't believe like I like the the the, the hitcher is one that makes I can't I um I can believe we're doing this because of course we're doing this, but it's one of those ones like wow, we're 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 saying we're canonizing it, we're doing it today. There's no other with option. This movie. There's no other. I know who killed me. I know who killed me. Is Austerion canon? It is. It is. It is is in it, like in a different way, but as acutely so. Why we are gathered here is to celebrate movies like The Hitcher. In in like the the opposite direction, why we are gathered for this podcast and and the the motivation that brings us together is to celebrate also the I know who killed me's of the world. To truly exercise our trash raccoon sensibilities and force you to reckon with the cultural impact of movies on the level of this Lindsay Lohan spectacular. And I hear you, soul straight person listening to this podcast right now. You're thinking, <laughs> how can something that bad be that good? And here's the thing. Something can not be perfect and still be lovable. And I think that's yes. what makes it so queer. Like uh, the act of reclaiming trash is something that's so uh, that comes so naturally to queer folks. Um, this, which I think, is exactly. You're also delivering a character read on the one on one portrayal that Lindsay Lohan delivers in this movie, which is of Dakota, the 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 dark half of the equation. You you could be explaining Dakota right now. What could you could you intro maybe just like <laughs> summarize the movie or maybe the beginning. Uh, yeah, I Know Who Killed Me, for those of you who either don't know or forgot or blocked it out, was a, I mean, we, no surprise to you all out there, this is a 2007 special, and as Sam pointed out in a recent movie night viewing of this movie, he does have a PhD in the year 2007. I got a black belt, folks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna not, I'm gonna cut this brick, wait, that's not what they do. I mean, you could. You're you're going to slice through thirty boards. That's what of 2007 it is. Oh, I'm so bad to at get sports. through all the layers of this movie to get down to the bottom. I prefer the PhD. I'm sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> yes, okay. In this movie, uh, which uh, stars Lindsay Lohan twice, uh, it is about a young uh, girl growing up in a Tony neighborhood named Aubrey Fleming. She's a high school student, even if everybody looks like they're like probably college juniors. <laughs> And she is an aspiring writer, as we will see from some of her works that are dotted throughout this movie. And in fact, she may she, even teach one of her writing classes. Not she clear. May, she may Not clear. even very sexily be teaching one of her writing classes where one of the female students definitely has a crush on her. And she is abducted by a mysterious person, turns up uh, as a double amputee. And when her family, uh, when she is reconnected with her family in the hospital, Double Amputee has no recollection of who these people are and claims that she is a girl named Dakota and has no idea who any of these people are. 
well, now we have uh, two missing girls. We have one another uh, girl in the community who's gone missing. Similar amputations, like exact exact amputations have been performed on her when the body was recovered. Uh, Dakota missing now an arm below the elbow and a leg below the knee. Uh, is trying, is under duress, trying to explain the crime that happened to her, while also we are left to wonder if the Aubrey-Dakota dichotomy is like a delusion, or if it's literal and it's real, and Lindsay Lohan uncomfortably says fuck so many times in this movie, and for some reason nobody can describe her wounds as anything other than being cut. Here's the thing, people get cut sometimes. People get cut. That's life. People get, People cut, get sometimes. cut sometimes. That's life. That's life. If there's one, if there's one takeaway from this movie, if there's a moral of the story of I Know Who Killed Me, it's that sometimes people get cut. People get cut. It's life. That's life. It's for those of you who have seen the Black Christmas 2006 remake as many times as I have, yes. you know that they constantly say "You're my family now." Uh, people get cut. Yeah. Is the you're my family now of I know who killed me. Sometimes people get cut. (laughs) The thing that you have to do for those of you who are just now approaching this material. (laughs) You have to let go of the idea that the title is going to tie into the movie. Because I promise you it will. But it's not going to be the payoff you want. So this is not a movie about uh, Aubrey Dakota trying to figure out who killed her. That is not it. Yeah. This is a movie yeah. about a girl who writes about a stripper <laughs> and then wakes up, is found after going missing and says, uh-huh. hey, I'm that stripper, coincidentally. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's like, is this her fanfic? Or, <laughs> you know, is there a possibility that there's another twin out there? Yeah, yeah. It is, it is, and the, the, like, the... The character, the, the the sort of characters that were introduced in this, we have a very disturbing-looking piano teacher who wears tiny sunglasses inside. We have very combative law enforcement who immediately take a victim-blaming posture with a woman who's been forcibly amputated <laughs> after a kidnapping. We have Neil McDonough, who is possibly always a villain. You never really know. Well said. And yeah, you never really know. So that's a that's a great narrative texture, whether intentionally or not, in this movie, where you're constantly wondering about his culpability and all of this because he's Neil McDonough. Um, shouts out to his great performance in The Hitcher. You have right. mysteriously Julia Ormond playing Aubrey's mother, uh, who is in this movie very much. You have the you have the very two thousands boyfriend wearing like the ringer tee, who it must be stated that. Upon meeting, quote-unquote, Dakota, like the double amputee, um, he he breaks down in tears at the idea she's not Aubrey, but quickly resolves his emotional conflict as soon as she starts making out with him and makes it clear that they're going to have sex. And he is suddenly, utterly unencumbered by the reality that his girlfriend either may be gone or has dissociated into a new personality and is now going to have sex with him for the first time, herself a double amputee. So, like, that's just a taste of some of the situations that were given in this movie that said seem to say yes and to a lot of things. It's a real yes and. I I want to I want to just start us with the strip club. I would say Lindsay yeah. Lohan. The movie really starts us with as the an strip erotic club, dancer so. is really maybe the, the most well known part of this film. Now, the most yeah. well known part of this film should be the glass coffin. yes the glass coffin and the icicle weapons really truly uh, underrated but let's get to the stripping so Mm -hmm. in 2007 we have britney spears releasing the gimme more video um which was actually really original uh originally i worked with the director and he showed me a treatment for what the original video was it was this really great commentary on um on what was happening at the time um with britney spears's life just like um piece of me's video actually was originally she was crucified she was supposed to be crucified to a cross made out of tabloids but the britney camp obviously always pushing back and at the time britney spears wasn't able to jump in and and i know i know anybody who knows me is like wow weren't you talking about i know who killed me how did you jump into britney spears you are so sam wyman but because because 2007 2007, this is a pivotal year all she did was she showed up to set in her hat and her wig she said i'm here for half an hour and they filmed her dancing around she wanted to dance on a pole they said okay she insisted 
And that was the video for Gimme More. So we have this like, I think we had this idea at the time, especially with femininity, and I'd love to hear your take on it, Jordan, but it's Uh uh where this is like the ultimate taboo for like a Disney star. It's like to be eroticized, to be something like a sex worker, which Dakota is Lindsay Lohan playing Dakota, who is playing the part possibly of a sex worker or or not a sex worker, but an erotic dancer. And when we're coming off of Britney Spears shirking her whole uh like the quote virginal past we have the obsession mm-hmm. with Jessica Simpson's virginity in obsession. the t- obsession in in that MTV TV show uh yeah yeah the newlyweds and we have uh just society really concerned with the sexuality of the women that we are sexualizing yep yep um this movie well, starting out in the strip club it's a big move it was well in this this movie it like this is i remember when i if I'm remembering this correctly, I know I went and saw it in a theater, and I saw it as a double with um, the very good sci-fi movie Sunshine. And I saw, uh, well, I didn't see it as a double. I bought a ticket to Sunshine, and then I, I went to I Know Who Killed Me Afterwards for free. I snuck in. So I went and saw Sunshine. That was great. I go to an opening weekend, like 10.30 p.m. showing of I Know Who Killed Me. And there was there was sensation around this movie because of Lindsay Lohan at the time, but there was not hype. This was not a movie that for the, the seriousness with which this movie's material was approached by the people who made it, it was clear that it was going to kind of show girls. That it was not actually going to be the impactful statement cinema that it was supposed to. And in yes. 2007, you have Lindsay in a real interesting middle period she like the like she the movie the movies like most recently before this in her her filmography are Georgia Rule yep the absolutely heinous multi-generational family dramedy that is disguising a insidious plot of systemic child abuse and alcoholism that in no way was marketed in its advertising you have um you have the movie uh Bobby where it's like this supposed to be big deal ensemble piece about the uh, assassination of Bobby Kennedy. And it's supposed to be one of these like kind of Altman-esque important pieces of cinema that ends up just being kind of like populist filler. Like it doesn't actually get the acclaim that it's supposed to kind of falls flat. She's also coming off the actual Altman movie, A Prairie Home Companion, where she has this side part, but working with a much more credible director than she really had up to that point, like the Robert Altman. She's leaving, she's winnowing away from that Disney period, that fully formed Disney period where you have Herbie fully loaded in 2005, Mean Girls in 2004. You have Lindsay kind of coming on the, on the back side. How dare you leave out Just My Luck? Just My Luck. You're right. You're right. Just My Luck is in there. The I'm audacity, right Jordan the Cruciola. Audacity. You're, you're right. You're right. And this comes, like, this, I feel like it's important to note too that this comes. Um, two years before Labor Pains. Uh, uh, which is, by the way, a great An film. An actually better movie. <laughs> yes. Yes. An actual legitimate comedy. Yeah. Uh, that it was better. One of her best. Than it was given credit for. Um, but because it, it, because Labor Pains came out at the time that Lindsay, at the time where Lindsay's reputation had declined such that it had, it got saddled with the stigma of being another one of those kind of like burner Lindsay Lohan movies that was just going to be another throwaway. So you have Lindsay and I Know Who Killed Me coming in on the, 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 the backside of the zenith of her fame, and the choices are starting to get kind of erratic. And this is supposed to be, I think, one of those like intense drama genre pieces that is meant to be provocative, and instead misses. On top of it, I think there isn't a possibility that Americans at the time, based on where we were at culturally, were able to see uh-huh. Lindsay Lohan as a serious actor based on yeah. the things that you were, even though she had done that string of those string of serious performances. Yeah. Um, she yeah. had been struggling with addiction at the time and had been yes. um, known for being flighty on set. She would leave yeah. everybody who worked like with her on those films. Yes. Lindsay Lohan. People were like blaming the movies being bad on Lindsay. So every one yeah. of those didn't, they underperformed and disappeared and it was like Lindsay's fault. So yeah. in 2007, when this was released, we were kind of thirsty for another leading role. And, and Lindsay Lohan and Samantha Ronson 
this is when they were involved was in 2007 so the tap this was as we talked about in in the hitcher episode where we were laying really the philosophical groundwork for what we're going to do here she is at the height of her tabloid examination and she's in this queer relationship that was never really that was always kind of still framed as the gal pals thing it was never really actually recognized right for like the romantic involvement that it was and so there has persisted this sort of like strange gray area stigma about it and so there's there's the and because it's it's this relationship with a woman that is happening at a time when she's becoming a set liability and the work is not consistently the work she's in is not consistently good there's this combination of things where everything is poisoning everything else and it's making each individual choice a bad choice and making make, kind of making each individual choice worse by nature of like adjacent failures and so there's a sort of stain on unrelated parts of her life because she's con- sort of considered this collective failure like becoming the sort of collectively considered failure at the time and like you said with sexuality this is the era too when because we still had this really firm because i totally missed your question before be, we had this very firm coming off an area where the mouse house had graduated to the Brittany Justin era of stardom where these graduates of the Disney factory were our biggest celebrities and they're becoming adults. And this is, this is a, I feel like the sort of early pre the, the first sort of precursor to how this trend would happen of the Disney stars breaking from their very homogenous constraints was you have Jessica Biel in seventh heaven who appears on the cover of gear. And then it became that sort of, I think, set the millennium era standard for when you are ready to break type, when you are ready to mature, you do this very adult looking thing that is considered conventionally adult, nudity, something risque, something scandalous, where that becomes the way in which you slough off the bondage of your your Disney past. You become like sultry Britney. You become provocative Lindsay doing I Know Who Killed Me. There are there, nudes are leaking. And the idea of sexuality is linked so inextricably to, to the fall that like there is no choice but to sort of like there was good girl and the, there was the good girl, bad girl dichotomy. So I want to talk about much, the fall. Much like Dakota and Aubrey. Yes. The fall is where we get a queer audience. And so, yeah, yeah, agreed. I I think that, yes, obviously, in retrospect, it's super easy to scoop this up and be like, ah, that's that's camp. Mm -hmm. Put yourself in 2007, three years away from Mean Girls, as you put out, that's not that long, right? So, Lindsay at the height of her career versus now, people, Mm -hmm. and there was something, um, I want to say, predatory about, uh, about paparazzi culture and our relationship to it. Where, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the way that culturally we destroyed Britney Spears in 2007, we did the same thing culturally to Lindsay Lohan. Um, she was, oh, yeah. she was, she couldn't those move through two, a crowd those without. Those are our two models. Yes. For the, for the, for the, the meat eating machine. I just. Of that era. Something that's really important to point out is that Lindsay Lohan tried to get protection legally. Um, she did take paparazzi to court right. and, and. Yep. And was basically thrown out of there because the judge is like, well, you're a celebrity. You signed up for yeah. it. And that yeah. became the precedent. So Lindsay Lohan was, I mean, her life was not livable. And yeah. then she uh, spun out on a drug addiction. She had a lesbian partner or a queer partner, mm-hmm. I should say, because yeah. obviously Lindsay dated both men and women. Um, yeah. But in a time when queer sexuality was looked at as a dichotomy. So it was. Yeah. So what it was, was drug addicted, lesbian, yeah unworkable like un unemployable Lindsay lohan is well, now going to release a movie and you would know too when does father to daughter come out daughter to father come out so that was 2006 2006 she is also known at this point for her family infighting and the broken home strife that saddles her with that baggage as well so sort of every most private part of her life has is fodder for tabloids as, as happens with celebrity, but is being judged at, at a most harsh time in the celebrity writing economy in a way that is unique to even the other peer stars of her time. I need to correct myself. It was 2005. So, but the but daughter to father. Da- yeah, so the song is Confessions of a Broken Heart. And yeah. for those of you who don't know, the album is like, uh, it's, it's called Raw, and then in parentheses, a yes. little more personal. <laughs> Yes. And at the time, again, <laughs> another joke. Like, this was Lindsay trying to say, hey, this is me. And when you watch yeah. her music video for Confessions of a Broken Heart, what you're seeing is, I mean, truly heart wrenching when you consider it's a it. Violent depiction of domestic abuse. 
Yes. Viol it says it's an upsetting, like, Ra is not a misnomer for the way she presented what she was going for in that album. It, like, it was, qu it was quite laid bare. And what is simultaneously horrific about the video is, and let me rephrase, I think we failed Lindsay Lohan, and it's clear when you look at that video. The reason being, yeah. that video is her saying, it's it's a depiction of domestic violence in a dollhouse that's being photographed by paparazzi. The point yeah. being, Lindsay with tried little with her little sister the part of the of the of the abused young child. So you know we're going to get into a lot of fun with Lindsay Lohan, yes. but I just wanted to set the stage that we have not given her. Uh, Lindsay has not had the justice ever, but I would say especially at this point in her career that she deserves. She was a victim who. Mm -hmm reached out for help and was photographed instead. And I think mm -hmm. that sets the stage for people like even Paris Hilton and like the big famous picture in 2007 of Paris Hilton, Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan all getting drunk and going out and yep. Lindsay piling into the car. Paris Hilton's mm -hmm. comment the next day to the paparazzi was that they didn't want her in the car. They didn't even like her. And so yeah. this gives you an idea of how far her fall is. We have a victim who has been blamed and has mm -hmm. thus fallen to the point where even other like tabloid celebrities she is the bottom of the food chain you're right enter i know who killed me now this movie yeah. did not have a promotional run that was huge we weren't because nope. they already knew they were like Lindsay's yeah. in court for a dui um yeah. this is not a good look she's not going to do press and mm -hmm. so all they could do was let us know that there was a scene where Lindsay lohan strips and that is yep. why i start us there this movie yeah. is most it's well marketing, known. It's marketing. It's marketing Jennifer's body on the back of Megan Fox as a as a sex object, yes. as opposed to this being a story of of a, of a friendship love story. This movie didn't have a chance because it got Jennifer's body. Now I don't mean because it was some beautiful piece of art like Jennifer's body. I mean yeah. the boy run media chose yeah. how they were going to market this film, and yeah. that's how it happened. So it simultaneously disappointed audiences who thought they were getting some like erotic thriller with yes. a like a stripper kind of thing and also disappointed people who kind of thought it was going to be I don't know, I guess wild things or you yeah. know that single white female era anything. Tawdry it, it played into something like it was going to be a scintillating tawdry entertaining film when it was it was even regardless of its quality in its execution this movie is not trying to have the kind of fun that a wild things is trying to have yes it's not there's nothing tongue-in-cheek about i know who killed me it is in fact like a quite somber movie like it has kind of fun, some funny exchanges with the, the wry sensibility of dakota and Lindsay does have a way of delivering a dry line. Yes. Um, but this movie is actually quite intense and takes itself very, very seriously. So it's sort of, it, it was a really hard movie to find, to localize the audience for that needed to see it. And at a time when I feel like people, like marketing folks and check writers were even less predisposed to getting a movie in front of the people who need to see it than they are now, it never stood... Uh, it feel like it feels like a lot of people gave up on this movie. I think that before we get into celebrating all of yeah. the magnificent swings it takes, I would like to talk about what is there substance-wise. There is yeah. another world where Lindsay Lohan, fresh out of Mean Girls and these successes, yeah. did not have the fall that she did, and then releases "I Know Who Killed Me" as an art yeah. film. As a modern right. day giallo, where tonally mm -hmm. we have our vivid reds and vivid blues, mostly blues, but as you see as this movie goes on, almost to it. I mean, if you're looking at it through a camp lens, it is ridiculous, but yes. also of the genre. If we look yes. at it as an American modern day giallo using exploitation film roots, yeah. To its I mean, characters. even the masked, the masked mysterious killer, like that is something. That is fucking, that is straight out of Baba in the 60s. Yes, yes. The color, the color story as, the color theory as Brent Bailey, cinematographer Brent Bailey, yes. well observed. Like, this movie is leaning into that primary colors, intensely specific archetypes, exploitation, 
thin on story, high on an attempt at style. Yes. Like taking women's bodies apart that is very evident in like the run of Giallo that is so lionized by people. So when we talk about 2007, you will hear Jordan and I reference 2007's blue aesthetic a lot, right? Oh my God, yeah. We yeah. get in film just constant blue. Uh, and and in this film, it actually and and as I've referenced before, 2007 being like to me the peak of the odds, that car crash that happens, yeah. is watching. I know who killed me. It is that yeah. blue, da -ba -dee -da, no, but blue just <laughs> like uh, a, onslaught. Um, it, it it is almost a satirical level of blue that is deployed in this movie to express a thing. I would love like, to think like, that was an intentional commentary. The killer's weapons are blue. His gloves are blue. Her room is blue. The co the glass coffin is blue. Another dead girl whose room Dakota goes into also blue. is blue. Yeah. The Obviously, the hospital has so many blues. Like, the amount... Aubrey has... Aubrey receives blue roses from her boyfriend yeah, at the start of the movie. Aubrey wears exclusively blue all the way down to, like, yes. the shirt under her blue shirt is also blue because, yes. you know, it's the 2007s. You got those layers peeking out. Oh yeah, yeah. We love to shrug with a long cami underneath. Love it. I would. I do like. I would like to say as we get into this, I do have to point out quickly that as we talk about the story of Lindsay Lohan at this time, the celebrity market, two thousand and seven. It is important to remember the savageness of like the online culture, uh, the online culturati. But it is also crucial to remember that mainstream journalism was barely better because like taken on the Mean Girls press tour. On, like, the post-Mean Girls high, Lindsay Lohan is 19, perhaps 20, and she is the, on the cover of Rolling Stone as its hot girl for either, for I think 2004 or 2005, in, like, a rather iconic series of photos. And there is a moment in, in the opening of the story, I believe, where a male writer is interviewing Lindsay for her hot, her it girl profile, um, because it's, because it's a hot issue. And at that time, there was a lot of questioning around, are Lindsay's boobs real? Yes. And there is a whole, whole sub, there's a whole sub thread of her, her career at the time where people are wondering about the reality of whether an 18 year old girl's boobs are fake. And he, it is called out at the beginning of this article that like the writer wants to ask about this, but knows he can't ask about this, but lets the reader know he surmises they are real through a process of, in a parenthetical, he says, through discreet fact-checking, comma, a goodbye hug. Disgusting. 19 or 20. That man shouldn't work. And this, I don't give and a this, fuck. And I'm not sitting I, here trying to cancel anything. Fuck that guy. And, and this is what I... But that, that was, that was, that was know, day rigor so for mad. the time. And the idea that you could say that in Rolling Stone... And that it was considered like not, a fun, quirky, like yeah. straight guy thing to and do. And that it was what the it was what the people wanted was the admission that I spent my interview with this young girl, not old enough to legally drink, staring at her tits, and took my opportunity to give her a goodbye hug, to determine for you, dear reader, whether or not her boobs were real. So this is exactly why. This is the culture of the time. And so it's like, you're that, there, that, there are that many narratives about you. You're, you're coming post Zenith of fame. Your family shit is on the table. You've put out, you put out your dance banger rumors years ago, expressing your concerns with paparazzi culture. Your lawsuit against photogs has been thrown out. Your love life is under a microscope with a woman. You have, you're like possibly embarking at this point, like you have the DI, DUI trial, you're, you're possibly in the early stages of like drug use, you've become an unreliable figure in Hollywood, your options are becoming more narrow, and you are like, I'm going to take my daring art house stripper film. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I think when we look at it through the lens of what Jordan and I just explained. Yes. It is inevitable that the only audience for this movie was queer people. <laughs> yeah, so, enter queer people. Right. We are hunting this movie down. And let me tell you, it wasn't playing everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were finding it. We were, I I went to a midnight showing of this film. Here's And mm -hmm. back then, midnight showings meant at midnight. It didn't mean 10 p.m. on yeah, Thursday or 6 p.m. on Thursday. You had to wait yeah. till midnight for it to officially be Friday. Um, yeah. And it was a ghost town. <laughs> 
when the, the when I stayed and like went the the night it opened, when as soon as like again as a picture of the era, the credits start rolling. Lindsay Lohan's name comes up on screen, and at the appearance of her name, the few sparse other audience members that were there started laughing. So, and not in a way that me and you laugh joyfully no. at this movie yeah. now in revelry, with a scorn behind it. Like they were there to witness the car crash, watching that movie. Thinking about it in terms of a time when queer people were queer people have always been on the fringe we've always been the Mm -hmm. other we've always been on the outside but i will say that it was an aggressively uh, culturally we were in a very aggressive time because it was um we were it was finally safe to make gay jokes as if we had moved past homophobia so we weren't allowed to be upset about it because supposedly it was already over and so It was a really tough, It's. it was an especially difficult time. And so mm-hmm. having been on the outside, having no media made for you, having mm-hmm. um, a culture who, all the jokes are at your expense, a figure like Lindsay Lohan, who has fallen mm-hmm. so far, who the joke is at her expense, who straight people are showing up to watch that burn. Yeah. We identify. I know I did. And I was mm-hmm. there to celebrate and cheer her on and if this is going to crash, girl, get me in the car. Give me a ride. I want to crash with you. Because let's go down in beautiful, beautiful Dakota Moss flames. And Blue I, flames. So Blue flames. We have set the stage probably extremely too well. And I. so the film itself. <laughs> yeah. The film itself is a remarkable monument to, I mean, it is, it's like, it almost feels like a satire of what an erotic thriller would be. Like, it, it, it feels, it, it, it is so inexplicable. So many vignettes in this movie are so fucking inexplicable. Why I feel this movie belongs in the Osterion. Why I feel like this movie belongs in the canon. The audacity that this movie had to be so serious about the absolute batshit things that it was doing, I simply cannot do anything but respect the, as you've alluded to, the swings that this movie takes in the name of, like, highbrow attempted um, B-movie salaciousness. Going out on a limb here, but when a man directs a film and its lead is a spotless, paparazzi-less person, like, uh, you know... What's that guy's name? Uh, Ryan in Drive. <laughs> oh, Gosling. Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Yeah. So if Ryan Gosling is your lead, you get to uh-huh. have Drive. You can take that shit so fucking seriously and people are like, yep. this is art. Watch Drive. Guys, watch Drive like we watch <laughs> I Know Who Killed Me. What do you do? A Drive. Same fucking aesthetic. So, I'm sorry, straight people, but wake the fuck up. The difference is, Lindsay Lohan was not an acceptable figure. So, suddenly, this movie was an instant joke, and the the straight sensibility behind it was actually never had a chance to exist, which is what makes it queer. And I think that's fantastic. We we already (laughs) took it down. We're like, no, sorry, but we'll take it. So here's yeah. here's what defines this movie for me is the scene when um when Dakota Moss who is stripping, she has a long glove because you know we love a stripper who never takes off her clothes. She has yeah, a long a good glove, button, sixteen button glove up there. To- it, it, it's a very warm glove, and it is <laughs> bleeding like blood is dripping down this this pole in the most beautiful yep. way. Um, yeah, it's later revealed she takes her gloves off and whoop, with it comes a finger, basically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it is just like, oh, shit, that's the movie we're in. There's yeah. even a moment later where I mean, the, the the gore in this film is horror. And that's it's what we forget. It is horrific. Shocking. Because the as the what we learn is that there it is a tw- it is a twin situation. Dakota and Aubrey are real and distinct people, and when Aubrey is the one who has been kidnapped, but she at this point in her life they become psychically linked, and Dakota starts manifesting the same injuries that are being inflicted upon Aubrey by the blue masked killer, and so as Aubrey is being cut to pieces in a basement warehouse in a like in a like basement in the woods. 
so too are pieces falling off of Dakota. So as her hand is being, as Aubrey's hand is being compressed between two blocks of dry ice that we see graphically pulled apart where her dead gangrenous skin is being peeled off of her body, so too do we see that injury manifesting in Dakota, who removes her stripper glove after a, a round out on the stage, and that finger simply falls right off. And it is, it, it is quite amazing throughout this movie, the catastrophic injuries that Dakota endures as a surrogate for Aubrey, and the calmness with which she processes losing whole parts of her body. Whole parts And of here's it. the most Bush-era 2007 moment. Mm-hmm. Her finger comes off, and at work, um, by the way, top build, Fat Tina. Fat Tina, top Played build. by Bonnie Ahrens of The Nun. Uh, yeah, yeah. Walks in and is like, hey, you okay? Basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Dakota's ready to go back on stage because she needs to pay her bills. She this girl doesn't have insurance. She can't go yeah. to the hospital. She takes the bus home and elevates it over her head and lights up a cigarette. Because nobody gives a fuck about her. This no, is a system that has tells, not cared for her. As she tells Fat Tina. Hospitals are for rich people. I'll be okay. Yes. So Fat Tina just hands her a towel and says, you're, you're going to need another towel. At which point Dakota quite blithely gets on the bus, has her hand just, the towel is saturated with blood and she is dripping a pool of blood onto the floor of public transportation and looks over at a man and makes eye contact with him. And he tells her, you need, to, you need to raise that up. You need to elevate it to, like, stop the bleeding. And, and Dakota, like, dryly looks at him and is like, Why aren't you going to ask me what happened? And the guy just looks at her and delivers, again, the movie's big takeaway. People get cut. That's life. The nihilism. That's life. That's life. And mind you, so you have sometimes people get cut. That's life. And let's just mind you, listener, the amount of times that Dakota gets asked about her injuries and the only verb that people use to question her is cut is just shocking. No one says hurt you. No one says amputate, mutilate. Everyone's just like, if I tell you I didn't see him, I didn't fucking see him. How do you know it was the same guy who cut you then? What about when he cut you? And how'd you get all cut up? The same person who cut her cut you. Dakota, who cut you? That's all we want to know. Why the fuck do people keep saying this? What is this? This wasn't like getting initiated into some sort of secret society. She's missing parts of her body. But thank God, once in the hospital, she gets like practically experimental government level technology to use as prostheses. It's important to look at the fact that everybody's conversation revolves around her body. And yes. and what happens to it, and that the yeah. and that the horror of this film is not that some man is going to jump out around the corner, but it's that she is not in control of what happens to her body. Yeah, it is a prelude, if you will, to mm. films that we are going to see at the end of the two thousands in regards to women. I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that this plays very well, until except for like <laughs> her robot glove. So here's the thing, friends. <laughs> she loses her limbs, as we know, yeah. and they are replaced by um, go-go gadget it's a, it's limbs. It's her right arm and right leg. And we're also introduced to a third color for the first time because the man who's giving her her prosthetics is inexplicably wearing yellow. So maybe there's <laughs> yeah, hope. He's wearing, yes, the the these uh, uh, physical therapist uh, prosthesis specialist is a young, eccentric-looking professorial medical person wearing a mustard yellow long jacket and we never get to see him again but he's a handsome gentleman and he's wearing yellow so red to recap red dakota moss stripper yep blue yep aubrey fleming and dakota moss as aubrey fleming yep yep until the ending sequence where they get to re where they get to take back blue together but (laughs) before we get to that we have to talk about robot sex Yes, we so, do. This is Lindsay's first sex scene. Yes. Correct? It is, is because Lindsay's... just my luck, it was there was a there was it was playful. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first like gritty sex scene. And you know, there's just it's truly inexplicable upon like even as after I, I watched this movie in theaters, 
When it came out on DVD, I promptly went to the video store and I rented it, and then I watched it for three nights in a row. Simply trying to believe what I had seen. Thinking it might make more sense the more I saw it, and it simply never did. And this is really the un the lack of self-consciousness around the decisions made in this scene are breathtaking well i would say they're really on par with the moment where they imply that Lindsay lohan can smoke a cigarette with her vagina at the strip <laughs> yes. club friends yes, she takes do. a cigarette out of a man's mouth yeah. like slowly draws it up her leg they cut away yep. okay yeah. so who they knows cut, what puffed on that cigarette then she <laughs> yeah, hands it back to him annoying. and he like smells it yeah girl he what sniffs. a party trick <laughs> he <laughs> He and like every strip scene that takes place, there are there are three I think uh, strip scenes that are quite lengthy that take place with Lindsay in this movie that are so slow motion. It is this is the anti hustlers yes. as far as like the the um, radiating sort of joy and sex positivity and celebration of women's bodies that hustlers was. No, here in this in the world of I know who killed me, strip clubs are a snooze. They are not erotic. <laughs> they are very no. sad. Yeah, they are very and, sad. And, and, and honestly, they take a long time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, truly, I don't see what the draw is. But if, if that's what a strip club is, how did these women make money? And, and, and I do want to point out, because this is a theme that's going to probably come up in this podcast a few times. There's a very special genre of aughts yeah. films that I like yeah. to call the very sad mystery. Very we sad we see it in mysteries. the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Um, yep. We see an element of that in The Quiet. Yep. And we see it here, I think, in its most shining form with "I Know Who Killed Me," a truly a, sad mystery. Because it is a very sad mystery. Even as she gets the answers, when she discovers she has an estranged twin, the reveal yep. is that the dad totally yep. fucked. Like, yeah, took. The like adopted just one of two twins to give to Basically, the mom. Yeah, paid for, yeah. Paid bought, for. Bought the twin, bought one of the twins of a drug addicted mother in the hospital because his child, I think, was stillborn. Yes. And somehow the mother was never informed, and he had enough time in between baby dying and acquiring. He had enough time between baby dying. To and like mother coming into consciousness again, I don't know. To find a, a drug addicted mom, purchase one of her twins, presumably giving her drug money, and then taking one of those twins back and presenting it to his wife as their infant. I know what you did, Daniel. Susan's baby died in the incubator. We bought Aubrey from the crackhead down the hall because she had one to spare. You're, not, you're, you're not Aubrey. Me. Hey, you're you're Daniel, Aubrey. You're kidnapped and you're hurt. Daniel, I'm not Aubrey. I'm her twin. <laughs> Stop it. It's a real child's play situation, like going in the back alley, <laughs> buying that magic doll. You know, she shows up and she's a twin with psychic powers. Okay. Yep. So yeah. <laughs> this is where we're at. And as Aubrey learns yeah. it, I want to tell you this entire movie, Aubrey doesn't have a character arc and it's important. No. Because Aubrey already knew the world was difficult. She's That's like, true. I am Dakota. here. Dakota. Sorry, uh, Dakota. Dakota has yeah. no arc because Dakota already knew the world was difficult. She already Actually, knew yeah. she was not going to be at these th this rich house forever. She knew some shit was up and nobody was listening. So she's going to fuck that hot boyfriend with her robot yeah. leg. She's going to do yeah. it so that mom can hear her. And then at the yep. end, when they reveal that like this is what's going on, this is her dark past, of course it was. And she begs the dad to help her like yeah. i she realizes that there's a psychic link she's like we are gonna get aubrey and he just yeah, will not step the fuck I am up still feeling her pain yes i know you may not care about what happened to me but what about aubrey what about the girl you raised to be your daughter everything that happens to aubrey happens to me he still has her okay now are you gonna help me find her I can't. You can't? I can't risk losing this. You're pathetic. Aubrey, at this point, we discover that she realized, like, because of the link, uh, mm -hmm. Dakota realizes that Aubrey is in danger of dying. And if she dies, the implication is that probably Dakota will die. So is it selfish? Yeah, of course. She doesn't know Aubrey. Yeah. She doesn't give a fuck. Aubrey's some girl yeah. who writes, like, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey. 
She wrote down the name and her real mother's last known address. But it was what she saw next that slammed her in the gut like a celestial fist. She stared at the hospital records in disbelief. It couldn't be true. But there it was in black and white. Not only did she have a mother she'd never met, she also had an identical twin. But Virginia Sue Moss had left town with her twin sister almost 20 years ago. How would she ever find her other half? She knew only that she had to try. She had no choice to be continued. You know, we don't, yeah, it's, it and reads it's, into and her English class. And rich and comfortable and everything she didn't get to have. Yeah. So it's like, she has to do what she has to do. Hospitals are for rich people. Uh, saviors are for people with family who cares. She is a, yeah. this movie is actually ultimately about class. She comes from a class where her mother had $11 when she died. And that's what she, yeah. that's what Dakota was left with. And she yeah. takes matters into her own hands. She uses the very limited tools that are around her. Yes. She doesn't even take time to charge her robot leg. She marches nope. out that door and she's going to fucking find her. And she's going to put an end to this goddamn mess. Is she wearing, because when we enter the bedroom, when her and the boyfriend are about to have sex, the the leg is charging on the wall. Yeah, it so is. So does she, does, does she apply the leg for the sex scene or is it only the stump? I believe that the leg was off in the sex scene because it was charging. Yeah. Yeah. It was off in the sex scene. And so what we have is a woman who, with limited physical therapy, um, is gliding about really on her new prosthetic and then proceeds to have sex with the boyfriend immediately gets on top and is resting all of resting her weight on the ampute the, the amputation stump and having sex with this teenage boy for an inexplicably long amount of time considering it was his first time while she is wearing a super strong like bionic robot hand prosthetic that has a rubber glove sheath looks over like it. a dishwashing glove Friends, yes. it is. I mean, it really is the laziest part of this movie. <laughs> they just put this and, love on Lindsay. They were like, Go and for it, it is. It is a fairly long sex scene that is intercut with Julia Ormond, the mom, in the presumably, I guess, the kitchen is located right below Aubrey slash Dakota's room because she is frantically, obsessively cleaning the kitchen, trying to drown out the noise of her daughter, possibly not daughter fucking a boy above her instead of just taking a drive could just leave the kitchen could just leave the kitchen you know uh it doesn't do it it's a it's a i mean to say that it's a perfect scene i don't want to throw the word perfect around <laughs> i'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. apply it here i think it, this is uh this is a perfect scene i have no notes i have sound mind and body say that yeah. this is a perfect this is, scene. uh and, and and i think that it's the it shows that character that I am drawn to about Dakota, which is just, it's not even no fucks. It's that she's going to take what she can while she can. While because she the can. world has taken everything from her. Now, yep. I'm going to break away for a second and tie it back to the beginning. But when we're watching Dakota Moss, this character who has been so wronged, who has reached out and asked for help, who has told people about the violence mm -hmm. in her life... And was left mm -hmm. to do nothing but commodify her own body. Yes. And then have it dismembered. This is Lindsay Lohan's career and where she was at in 2007 when this movie was released. And so... The only way in which she is deemed valuable is mutilated. Yes. We, have, we are taking her apart for the pleasure of the public eye. And so mm -hmm. in a very meta way, I mean, yeah. well, in an accidentally meta way, this yeah, film agreed, agreed. becomes... Something that's so much more to anybody who's watching it, whether they're clocking it or not, it feels a little bit wrong. It feels a little bit bad. Yeah. And it, it feels fucking a little bit, should. And I, I, think, I think that's the case. I think that is the case for why Oxterion, mm -hmm. why the canonization. Because as a, as a cultural artifact of study, yes. what you can process about stardom and celebrity and this particular this particular famous figure at the time and what it told us about our own voyeurism and our own appetites of the era and how it exists in conversation with the filmography of the star and how we judge the like role and work choices of some people when they start to be deemed less valuable. And then the critique about 
like the criticism of them not doing as good a work anymore it seems to exist apart from the fact that maybe probably options of what were available have started to decline in their quality and so cost benefit choices have to be made to continue to work and survive and stay relevant I think it this is this is movie is such a great experience of a mirror yes of a mirror viewing for watching it and looking at yourself and deciding seeing a bit more about who you are by learning about what takeaways you hone in on most from it besides sometimes people get cut this film is a is is not just a reflection of its culture but its success and and actually ultimate not uh, its ultimate failure um is reflective of where we were culturally with Mm -hmm. our attitudes towards women our attitudes towards celebrity culture and our Mm -hmm. attitudes about ourselves um and 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 our role in that um we were not yet looking at how complicit we were in what was happening Mm-hmm. Does that mean you can't watch this movie and have a showgirls experience? Fuck no. Does that mean I, you... and I that is I absolutely do. Call am, back am, that dialogue. Movie... Yell oh, yeah. it out because it <laughs> earns it. <laughs> yes, everything's fucking blue. Yes, that is a robot sex scene. Yes, this isn't. This is a very sad mystery that ends with a psychic <laughs> bond. It is a spiritual <laughs> sequel to Lindsay Lohan's The Parent Trap. Just take out the psychic accent and add the blood. We are there. Yeah. This is we a are moment. there. Let's have fun. But I do think it's important to remember that underneath that is a very dark reality. And it's an important yeah. reality to acknowledge. And it goes with, I think, either reason is why it belongs in Ozterion. Because on one hand, it is this cultural artifact. It is this moment in time. And it is a very yeah. important historical lesson, if you will, that I don't even yes. think we're talking about yet. I mean, you and I are, yeah. but I don't think straight people are. And I think yeah, that- I, I, and I think that is that we seek to correct the record in that regard. Absolutely. I think even in all of these like little, this is not to read anybody. I just mean, I see things pop up like, what, you know, was this movie actually so bad? Let's take a look. Uh-huh. They'll just go through it and still talk about it. So surface level. It's like, guys, look was, at what the was fuck it bad is going is so on. beside the point. Yeah. Wake up and look at the culture it emerged in and have a yeah. real discourse. Let's talk about it. But even just the fact that what you said, you rented it, watched it three nights in a row because you could not figure out like no. the why of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think there's a factor of this film. I was hypnotized. Hypnotized. By this movie. It is so magnetic. It is so yeah. outrageous. It is so the audacity of so yeah. many of its choices. That to me is why this is Ots Tyrion. Because if I will sit down and watch a movie every night in a week, girl, that's Ots Tyrion. If I am dedicating that I'm much saying. of my life to to memorizing a line, that's yeah. it. I am a I am a huge and I I anticipate it being on this podcast. Um I am a huge fan of the movie What Lies Beneath. And that movie was very successful, even if semi-maligned at the time that it came out. The reviews were quite quite critical in a way that like this purely entertaining, joyful thriller, adult contemporary horror film was it is such pure, perfect entertainment in its way and exists as a movie in its class in a class of its own, which I won't get into right now. But what Robert Zemeckis was going for in this was creating that Hitchcockian kind of suspense that we didn't really work with a lot at that time like in the the year 2000 and we're coming off the erotic thriller area which this movie flirts with but is not and the reason I I bring it up is because like the idea of this being Hitchcockian in this movie um being criticized the way that it was you know what I have watched more than I've watched Psycho What Lies Beneath Mm. I have watched What Lies Beneath more than fucking Rope or The Birds, or Vertigo. And that is to say nothing, like nothing to impeach the legacies of Hitchcock's classic films. Fantastic. But you know what matters? If I want to keep going back and back and back to a movie over and over again, then goddammit, yes. That deserves to be put on some sort of hallowed ground. So next time your friends tell you (laughs) that something is trash, own it. Because... If you, Absolutely. if we are watching it this many times, there is something there, and everybody else needs to wake up. So everybody I will talk else about needs to wake up. This is the end, and to wrap it up because we're there. Yeah. But there is a 
there is a beauty to the ending where this this man who is has been behind the horror of it has these like yep. glass has these glass weapons. She goes through a house where all of these uh, prosthetic legs are hanging, which fucking inex- hanging from the ceiling ties with her situation. Like, yes, he's dismembering women, but also what? I mean, it is a full <laughs> circle. He's like, not putting them back together again. He's fucking killing them and burying them. If you've ever taken Why a short fiction class things? at a community college, you know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah. about. The ending is yeah. this. You know, it's just yeah. like, oh, all the metaphors explicitly link. Got it. And then yeah. uh, and when yeah. he atten- basically she vanquishes him and has to yeah. dig Aubrey out of the ground because she's been buried alive in a uh, beautiful glass coffin. Yes, dig Aubrey, dig herself. Yep. And uh, somehow we breeze past the line before, like the inciting line. But she does have a moment where she shouts. I know who killed me. (laughs) Which is ultimately a lie because uh, she's alive and she's right there. Aubrey's also alive. So that that doesn't even work. You can't even say me isn't her. I mean, really, it's it's, I, I know that my... A strange twin is still alive. Let's save her. Yeah, but that's a yeah. less. I know title. who's victimizing me. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Love it. And for that reason, <laughs> that bonkers fucking ending. Give me more. Give me this movie forever. Give me a million midnight showings. But I challenge you as a viewer mm-hmm. to honor the legacy that is this mm-hmm. film. Don't just show up to that midnight showing and give that stupid surface reading from that whatever blog that you saw. No. Like. No. Go watch this movie and fucking educate people because yep. this movie deserves love. And <laughs> just like Lindsay Lohan deserved love. She deserved it. We can't she... do anything about the the Confessions of a Broken Heart music video. But yeah. <laughs> what we can do <laughs> is yeah. reclaim this movie as ours. No, I completely agree. And if if I had if I had anything to add to that, like for me, why this is is Ots Tyrion is because it is indicative to me of it is such a valuable piece of of it's like it's like pulling a tablet out of the dirt and decoding 2007 and i think there is so much for a and this is you know the, the thrust of the whole podcast is for the purposes of like our posterity and and us canonizing in the way that we see fit um in the name of people who didn't typically get to make the canon in the first place the idea of the, so much being dis, so much of what went wrong being distilled in, in genre being distilled in this decade is, is is encapsulated i feel like in this movie which lazily allows people to elide over the value the meta value of the text that can add to your so much add to your experience of watching it and reveal more and more to you over time as you do watch it more and more and for that the amount of conversation I can get, the amount of close read that I can get out of a movie like this, this is this is every bit as nuanced for me as like queer metaphor in like Creature from the Black Lagoon. So if there is this much this much textual and super textual deep diving to be done on a film, then it is deserving of preservation and reappraisal, as as our Ots Tyrion canon would would demand. Love this film, but be real about it. Just because yeah. something is a sad mystery and just because something has a sad <laughs> real life even doesn't mean we uh-huh. can't celebrate how ape shit it is. We can do both <laughs> at the same time. Yes. And if you if we can't, that means we're not queer. <laughs> yeah, Those yeah, people can't. But listen, you it. can. And if you're having trouble doing it, I'm going to leave you with this homework. Pick up the um, album Raw, a little yeah. bit personal, and listen to it. It's actually way better than you thought. <laughs> except when it's not and it's bonkers it is a, a perfect uh it's a perfect companion to this podcast so um you yeah. can find me at sam weinman on twitter mm-hmm. and instagram you can find raw a little bit more personal uh in the dollar bin at walmart and jordan where can we find yeah. you you can find me on twitter at j-o-r-c-r-u Crew, and you can find me on patreon where i'm defending the life of sydney prescott at patreon.com slash cruciola and uh, you can uh, you can also find joy by opening your heart to these movies that we are presenting deeper reads to you on. And I I I do hope. Oh, for and then I issue a challenge to any listeners out there: if you can find the supercut 
that someone made of this movie called I Know Who Fucked Me <laughs> that is just a compilation of all the times Lindsay Lohan says fuck in this movie, please find us on Twitter and reply to please. one of us with it, one or both of we us, because I can't find it. it. And I did not dream this up. I know it happened and I would love to see it again and have it be a part of the narrative of this podcast. So please, please help contribute to the mythology of Austerion by helping us find I Know Who Fucked Me, the supercut. But until, and, and you know, and on that party note, until the next rec- until the next reclamation project we you join us for, thank you. And we will see you again. In the great words of Mandy Moore. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you.